remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 6. This is also our sermon text. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his apostles had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone on away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, we thank You for Your Gospel. The truth that we can build our lives on. That we can believe and receive as absolute truth. Help us to understand, to believe, and to do what you are calling us to do from this text. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to do it. So be with us as we meditate on your scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've told one or two of you recently that as I've been going, working through John, as we've been working through John, it struck me like never before that John, the book of John, the gospel, is about faith, about believing, about true faith versus false faith, about faith that endures to the end Versus faith that does not endure because it is not rooted in good soil. The key passage, the key verse from our passage today is John 6.27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. What we're going to find is that this verse is about faith. The difference between the two different kinds of laboring is the difference between the two different kinds of faith. It's not obvious just from that verse, but we'll see that as we go along. 
But the first question we can ask is, what does it mean to work for food that endures to everlasting life? And then the second, what does it mean to work for food that perishes? What is the difference? And how do we make sure that we are doing the one and not doing the other? So before we even understand how this passage relates to faith, as I'm suggesting, we need to know that these are the questions that the text presents to us. Whatever it means, we need to know how to not do one and how to do the other. Everyone is working. Everyone is working for something. Every person gets up in the morning for some kind of purpose or purposes. What are you doing to make sure you are working for the food the bread that endures? What are you doing to make sure you are not toiling for the food that perishes? What are you doing so that you have everlasting life? That's what is on the line here according to Jesus' words in verse 27, what I'm calling the key verse. Are you laboring on the path to eternal life, everlasting life? Or are you laboring on the path that will end up in eternal death? Everyone is on one of those two paths. Which one are you on? And how do you know? Which kind of faith do you have? Before we home in on verse 27, Let's make sure we understand the context, the setting, where we are in the story. Everything in John 6, this this is a crucial chapter in in John. That's why we're going to spend several weeks on it, even more than some of the other chapters. Everything in John 6 points to Jesus as the bread of life. In verses 1 to 11, Jesus had gone over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And there on that eastern shore, eastern side, not too far from the shore at least, he feeds 5,000 people, really more than that, not counting the women and children, it was 5,000 men. And he does it with five barley loaves and two fish. By a miraculous power, Jesus provides food for thousands of people. This miracle was a sign that pointed to something else. It pointed to Jesus as the bread of life. The true bread from heaven. See, the feeding of the multitude was not an end in itself. It was meant to be something, a sign that, that signified, signified, signified something beyond itself. Jesus is the living bread. That comes down from heaven. And and we know this because of the entire chapter of John 6. If we read the whole thing, we would see that. So let's look at a handful of verses. Verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. He who comes to me shall never hunger. These are all quotes from Jesus. Verse 41. I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Verse 55. For my flesh is food indeed, or 
My flesh is true food. Food truly. The miracle of the barley loaves and the fish signified that Jesus is the bread of life. And after everyone had eaten as much as they wanted, they had all gotten full, fully satisfied, it says. Verse 13 says that they gathered up all the leftover bread and they filled up 12 basketfuls with it. They had left over more than they had to begin with. 12 baskets of bread for the 12 disciples. There was a basket left over for each of them. They had served and now they have 12 baskets that Jesus had provided for them. And this signified to the disciples that Jesus would always provide for them. 12 baskets for 12 apostles. No matter how much of themselves they gave, Jesus would always make sure that they had enough. Distributing the bread to the thousands of people no doubt would have been hard work. No telling how long it actually took. It would have taken a lot of time and significant logistical effort. And remember that Jesus and the twelve disciples were already tired before all of this. They were ready for a break. They were trying to get alone when the people showed up. They were wanting some time with Jesus. Time to kick back and relax. Away from people which they had been with on their missionary journeys. In addition to feeding the multitude here, Jesus gives a personal message to the disciples at the end of the miracle to let them know that He will always meet their needs. He will always give them more than they give to Him. You can't outgive Jesus. You can't outserve Jesus. And you can never be so tired, so spent, that He can't meet your needs and sustain you. So to the multitude, Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life that has come from heaven. Jesus has, I, Jesus, am the one that God has sent to you to be manna, to be food, to be everlasting life. Just as God sent manna to Israel in the wilderness to sustain them, to sustain their life, God has sent me Jesus says, into the world to give eternal life. And to the disciples, He's saying, follow Me and serve Me faithfully. Spend everything you have. And you will never lack anything. I will give you everything you need. You can just keep on giving. But the people misunderstood the true meaning of the sign. The disciples did too. But immediately we see that the, that the people misunderstood what this miracle, the main meaning of this miracle, which pointed to Jesus as the bread of life. They misunderstood it. In fact, what we really see here is they didn't want the heavenly bread that would give them life in the world to come. That's what Jesus is offering. That's what this miracle is pointing to. They wanted an earthly king, we see, who would give them victories in this world. 
Jesus knew this, so verse 15 says that he departed again to the mountain to be by himself. Then the disciples got into the boat. They crossed back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus doesn't go with them. He stays on the east side to pray, to spend time by himself and with the Father. And the people saw this. The people saw, okay, the disciples went west. Jesus stayed here. And on their way across, the disciples get caught up in a storm. And Jesus is, they're three or four miles away from Jesus. And they're stuck. They're rowing against the wind. And there's no way that Jesus can help them, it appears to them. They don't know what to do. But then Jesus comes walking on the water through the storm all the way to where they are. He comes near to them at a time when the disciples assumed that there was an uncrossable chasm between them and Jesus. And then Jesus says, when He walks up to their boat and they they see Him and they're afraid initially, He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's me. And what do they do? They willingly receive Jesus into their boat. And then what's interesting about John's account of this story is is that the story is over. Right there. Last week we looked at other versions in uh, in Matthew and Mark of this story. But John's story is unique in that it just ends right here. It doesn't give us a lot of the details. John tells us nothing about the calming of the storm. Nothing about the wind ceasing. Nothing about Peter walking on the water. Nothing about His power really here. Jesus just gets into the boat and then, and then immediately they're where they need to be. That's the next thing in the narrative. It's just over in verse 21. Somewhat abruptly. And so John's point here is a simpler point than Matthew's and Mark's. John's simple point is that the disciples need Jesus. Or at least we can say that the way he crafts his story highlights that really the the climax is that they need Jesus in their boat. Once he's there, once he's with them, then it's over. That's where it ends. That's where it climaxes. The disciples needed Jesus, the God-man, in their boat. They needed his presence with him. Because the point is not that he stopped the storm. It doesn't even say that he does. The point is that they needed Jesus in their boat. And we need Jesus in our boat. We need Jesus to be present. You need Jesus in your boat. And Jesus can be with you in this kind of way. He is with you in this kind of a way, even when it looks like he isn't, and even when it looks like he couldn't possibly be in the situation because of that chasm, that uncrossable chasm between you and him. But he can get there. He can get there even when you're stranded at sea. And it looks as if there's no way he can get there because there's this huge storm between you and him, between you and any kind of peace. He's always there. He's always watching. And you can always willingly receive Him into your boat. 
Jesus loves putting you in impossible situations where you have to feed 5,000 people with a sack lunch. And he wants to know, what are you going to do about that? Or where you have to cross an uncrossable sea in gale force winds. Just so he can show you that he will always show up and he will always provide. And that it's not really about your strength or what you can do after all. The bread of life is always present, always enough. Always provision enough. And what Jesus gives you is above all himself. Because really what John 6 teaches us is not that Jesus gives bread of life, but that he is the bread of life. When you have the bread of life, you have Jesus. When you have Jesus, you have the bread of life. He doesn't just dispense the bread of life. He gives you himself who is the living bread. If you've got Jesus... If you have the bread of life, then you have nothing to fear. Verse 22 brings us to the following day, it says. The people on the east side of the sea, which is where Jesus fed the 5,000. The people there, they can't find Jesus. They knew He had stayed, but they're wondering where He went since they know that He didn't get into the boat with the disciples. And there was only one boat there. They saw the disciples get into it and go on the west side by themselves. No other boat. Where could he be? Verse 23 says that some boats from Tiberias came to where they were. Now, this is a mysterious kind of verse. It's, it's a parenthetical verse there, verse 23. It's explaining to us how all these multitudes of people had boats. But it doesn't tell us how these boats got there. Did it get there because the winds from the storm the night before blew all the boats down the coast or something like that? Or were these people who had heard about the miracle from the day before and so there, there's people in these boats coming? We don't know. But they got into these boats. And verse 24 says, the people got into the boats and headed west to Capernaum. So, they, they went where the disciples went. Jesus is probably there, but they don't know. They're looking for Jesus, it says. And they found Him in the synagogue. That Our text doesn't say that here, but verse 59 toward the end of the chapter says, these things He said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. So we know that that's where they found Jesus in Capernaum, was at the synagogue. And then verse 25, and when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him in the synagogue, Rabbi, when did you come here? So, these were the people, remember, that Jesus had fed on the east side of the sea. And they're perplexed at how Jesus had gotten over to the west side where Capernaum is, since they knew that the disciples had left him behind. No other boats. They wanted an explanation. Is this another one of your miracles? But Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't actually answer their question. Because He sees through their question. He doesn't see their question as a hopeful sign of real faith. They still don't get the meaning of His signs, His miraculous signs. They don't get the meaning 
of the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. So his response in verse 26, the next verse, is blunt and somewhat critical. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, what's he mean? Not because you saw the signs. These people saw the signs that Jesus performed, but they didn't really see the signs that Jesus had done. Because they didn't understand, they didn't see what the signs signified. See, the signs that Jesus performs are like beams of light, rays of light from the sun. Rays of light emanate from the sun. They come down to earth and they give light and life. We see plants grow because of what the sun is doing for them, giving them life. We all, everything needs the sun. We need the sun. Life needs the sun. These rays of light that come from the sun, we could say, give light and life to our planet. And we recognize that this life-giving light, these rays, these beams, are coming from the sun. We follow the rays of light back to the source, back to the sun. We know the source. We recognize the source. Well, the signs that Jesus is doing are like rays of light emanating from the sun. And for a person to view these signs correctly, these miracles correctly, he needs to make sure that he follows the rays back up to the source, back up to the sun. But the people aren't doing that. They weren't following the signs, the miracles, back to the source. They were fixing their eyes on the beams of light. But the whole point of the sign is to run your eyes back up the beam, up the ray, and to fix your eyes on Christ, on the glory of the Son of God. These people were natural people, not spiritual people. They wanted to follow Jesus because of what He could do for their bellies, not because they wanted eternal life. They wanted a king who could fill their stomachs just like this every day. They failed to, they failed to let their eyes run up the glorious beam from the pleasure of their bellies to the treasure of Christ Himself. They didn't follow the ray of light back up to the beauty of the sun. They fixated on the product of the miracle instead of the person of the miracle. So the sign ceased to be a true sign to them. They wanted the pleasure of bread, but not the treasure of Christ, who is the true bread. And we must not make the same mistake. The gifts of Christ are grand and glorious. 
and we are to give thanks for them. But our true treasure is Christ Himself. That's where our gaze is fixed. Jesus alone is our all-satisfying food, our bread from heaven. We may not always have full bellies, but we always have Jesus, the living bread. We may not always have good, perfect circumstances, but we always have the presence of Christ. And when Christ does give full bellies, when He does bless us with happy circumstances, peaceful relationships, a good job, a full bank account, we must avoid setting these things up as idols. These people were willing and ready to bow down to Jesus and praise Him as their King as long as He kept performing signs like this. But they were not willing and ready to follow Him into suffering and even death. What about you? Are you willing to follow Christ to the cross? To the cross that He has prepared specifically for you, or crosses, probably? Or are you more in it for the signs? Are you satisfied with Jesus in the midst of hard, even impossible circumstances? Is Christ your treasure? Even when He's not providing very many pleasures for you. At least not at the moment. It may be that God withholds pleasures. He withholds miracles from us because it's tempting to fix our eyes on the product of the miracle instead of the person of the miracle. It may be that hardship rather than Miracles is a better way to get us to treasure Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of, God, Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Jesus says that the Father has set His seal on Him. We could paraphrase this as the seal of approval. God has certified the Son, His Son, as His own agent, authorizing Him as the One who alone can represent Him and give eternal life. I think ultimately an application of what Jesus is saying here is that He is this mark, this stamp that this seal that God has put on the Son marks Him as being God Himself. As one with God. Jesus is the exact imprint, Hebrews says, of God. And this authorizes Him to give this everlasting life, this true bread, which is ultimately Himself. But the most important part of verse 27 is where Jesus says not to labor for the food that perishes, but instead labor for the food that endures to everlasting or eternal life. 
what is the food that endures? How do we get it? How do we work for it? How do we labor for this? Come on, tell me what I have to do. The answer is in verses 28 and 29. Let's look at 28 first. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now this question, we could say, naturally follows from what Jesus just said in verse 27. He said labor or work for the food that endures to everlasting life. So they ask in verse 28, okay, how? Give me some steps here. What's this look like? I want to do it. What works are you talking about? Tell us what God requires and we'll go and do it. Give us a list. But they miss the point. They fail to see that eternal life is a gift that is first received. A gift that is foremost received. It's not something that can be worked for and earned. Now we know that good works follow, but initially, first, fundamentally, it is received by faith. And it can only be received by faith. If it was something they had to work for, they never could have gotten it. So Jesus sets them straight in verse 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him. Whom he sent. The work of God, the work that God requires is faith in Jesus Christ, and faith in the one whom he sent, faith in the Son of Man. So, what's it mean to labor for food that endures to everlasting life? Jesus says it means to believe, to believe in him. It really, in one sense, doesn't mean to work at all. There's a sort of paradox here. Jesus does this a lot in his teaching. It means to receive the work that Jesus has already done on your behalf. That's how we can understand this, living on the other side of the cross. You see, the food that endures was standing right in front of them. How are they going to work for that? The all-satisfying heavenly bread of eternal life was talking to them. And to get it, to eat it, to receive it, all they had to do was trust in Him. Trust in Jesus. They could work themselves to the bone for God every day. All day and never get the food that endures to everlasting life. Or they could simply believe in the one standing before them, Jesus, and get an eternal supply of heavenly bread. Believing in Christ means receiving him and eating him for the heavenly food that he is. Eating Christ is a metaphor for faith. 
believing in Christ, receiving Christ. And the food that endures to everlasting life must be received by faith alone. Believing in Jesus means willingly receiving Him into your life, into your soul, into your boat, if you will, as your life-giving treasure. To those who receive Jesus, John 1 says, He gives the right to be, come, to be called sons of God. To labor for the food that endures is to put all of your trust in Jesus. To receive Him, which means to believe in Him. So then what's it mean not to labor for the food that endures, but instead to labor for the food that perishes? Or a better way to ask it, what does it mean to not labor for the food that perishes? How do we do that? We want to make sure not to labor for the food that perishes. Jesus says not to work for perishable food. He means not to work your guts out or to long for the pleasures of this world. Don't stay up late and rise early to make sure that your belly and your bank account are full. Of course, we know that Jesus is not saying to quit our jobs, to stop working for food. It's okay to go to work, get a paycheck, and then bring home perishable food and to feed your family with it. Obviously, that's not what Jesus means here. You must keep working. The rest of the New Testament makes that clear, that your work is good. For example, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, same word, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So he provides for himself, food that perishes and he provides for others food that perishes because he quits stealing and he goes goes and gets a job okay that's that's a good thing so when jesus says don't labor for food that perishes he doesn't mean stop working and making money to put food on the table but what does he mean he means don't make anything in this world your treasure don't make anything in this life, rather than the life to come, the world to come, your highest treasure, your dearest treasure. The food that perishes represents everything on this earth that will not last, that passes away, as Paul says. Another way of saying, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, is to say, as Jesus says elsewhere, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The difference between true faith and false faith is the difference between heavenly treasure and an earthly treasure. Where is your treasure? What do you think about? What do you want? What makes you go? What makes you get up in the morning? What's your purpose when you get out of bed? 
Is it earthly treasures or heavenly treasures? Is it perishable food or imperishable food? Is it this world or the world to come? Is it the things on the earth or is it Jesus at the right hand of God? If you have received Jesus, if you have eaten of the bread of heaven, then you know that two things have happened to you. First, a new chapter has been added to your life. And second, a new treasure has been added to your heart and displaced other treasures. The new chapter that has been added to your life is eternal life. So that the the end goal is no longer, you know, the climax is no longer retirement, but eternal life. Everlasting life, as Jesus says here. And the new treasure that has been added to your heart is Christ Himself, the person of Jesus Christ. And these two additions, these two changes, transformations, change everything about you. They don't just add another layer onto who you are. They change something about everything about you. Earthly perishable food and all that that represents, not just the food itself, but earthly perishable things no longer dominate your heart and your mind and the way you spend your time, the way you map out your goals. You don't work to get a full belly or a full bank account. You work to glorify Christ and His kingdom. Because your primary food is Christ Himself. Christ dominates your heart and your mind because He is your supreme treasure. He is your food that endures to everlasting life. Something that you have because you have Christ. And when Jesus gives you impossible tasks or sends you into impossible storms and you feel abandoned, or afraid, or alone, or all the above, you remember, I'm going to live forever in eternal bliss. I have everlasting life with God. Most of my life, most of my existence will take place in a different world from this one. A new world, new earth. If you keep eternal life in the front of your mind, if you keep the bread of life as the true treasure of your heart, you will bring zeal and joy and contentment to everything you do, to all of your work. Because your aim will be to make much of Christ and much of His heavenly kingdom instead of making much of you and your earthly things. 
And you'll know that everything you do for Christ and His kingdom in this world, whether you're teaching a child to read, or picking beans, or gathering eggs, or going to the office, or cleaning the bathroom, everything you do in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, in this world will be rewarded forever and ever somehow, some way in the world to come. Because everything, nothing that you do is in vain when you do it for the Lord. These are the things that you can know. These are the things that you do know when you receive the true bread. If you've eaten of the true bread of heaven, then you won't be driven by upward mobility, climbing the corporate ladder, gaining positions of power. You won't be working for the weekend or for retirement. Something about everything changes when Christ is your primary food. And in one sense, your only food. Something about everything in your life changes when Christ is the true treasure of your heart. And when everlasting life is the final chapter of your life. Jesus offered Himself freely. He offers Himself freely to you as the food that endures forever. And you don't work to get it. You receive it by faith. Receiving it is faith. You receive Him willingly. He already did all of the work that was necessary. There was work that was necessary. He already went to the cross and did all of the work on your behalf. It cost Him a lot. It cost Him deeply. But it's free to you. All you do is eat and live. You eat and live forever. Eat Jesus and be satisfied always and forever. Make Jesus your heart's treasure and you will never lack anything. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, thank You for sending Your Spirit to us to open our hearts to the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to make Him our treasure and to make Him the food that we long for, that we receive, that we eat above all perishable food, above all earthly possessions. Help us to set our hearts and our minds on things above and not on earthly things. We need your help to do this every day. We need you to sustain us and to give us growth in the grace of treasuring Jesus Christ above all. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.